Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royfield Brown, who's 37.8 minutes north and 122.3 minutes west, which puts me in my beloved Oakland in California. And with me is that most consummate of professional podcasters. It's Claire Asprey. Where are you today, Claire? Well, as usual, I'm at 52.1 degrees north and 0.5 degrees east in Bedfordshire, UK. Map Corner is a podcast dedicated to the love of maps and to all things cartophilic. So if Peter's is your projection, you're in the right place. This month, our special guest is David Martins, who is executive chef at the EU Embassy in Washington, D.C., so that's covering quite a lot of geographical ground. So uh, I'm really looking forward to, to the ability to uh, travel the world vicariously through food, given that we still can't much leave the house back here in Blighty. This month, we have an audio postcard from our most wonderful guest who was with us last month. But folks, don't forget to review us on Apple iTunes, because that's a great way of us getting new listeners and new members into our Map Corner community. And if you're on the Map Corner Facebook group, you'll get the link and be invited, in fact, to every recording on Zoom. So that's the way to be part of the conversation as it happens. We record every first Saturday of the month at 6pm UK time, which is 1 Eastern and 10am Pacific time. But now we're going to uh, interview Man of the Moment. It's Davide. Man of the Minutes, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, David. And um, you're a uh, very proud Port- Portuguesean? Portuguese? How do you say that? Portuguese. Portuguese. And, 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 and a chef, obviously, uh, in, in America, but for the whole of the EU. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you became a chef and then how do you, how do you become a, a chef for the EU? Okay, so it's not a very romantic story, but I'll tr- I'll try. Growing up, never had a whole lot of interest on in cooking. My mom did all the cooking. She's a horrible cook. She's hopeless. So sometimes I say I became a chef to save the family. However, when I was about 13, 14 years old, there was two shows on BBC, actually, I started watching. One was The Two Fat Ladies. And the other show was Ready, Steady, Cook. And there was something about those two shows that I thought they were very interesting. The idea that you create something out of nothing, almost, that was interesting. And, you know, a few years passed by. And when I was 17, I decided to apply for culinary school. I got it. It's a five-year, it was a five-year program. I did, actually. As soon as I finished, I became, I, there was a position available to be the head chef at the Portuguese embassy in DC. I applied. I got the job. So three months after finishing my degree, I was in, in US. And five years ago, I moved to, the European Union Embassy. Six years ago, I moved to the European Union Embassy. That's where I still work. 
But so basically, I never had that kind of dream. Oh, I want to be a chef. I want to cook for people. I want to. No, the, the the love for food developed much, much, much later. I was already in my like two, three years in the course actually when I actually tried to start to realize that actually I did enjoy cooking a lot. Well, that sounds great though. And and to go straight to the embassy must have been really interesting. So, um, and and this is a question I've heard you ask on your podcast. But what were your perceptions or misconceptions about american food when you moved to the u.s burgers i <laughs> one thing is that when people nowadays the biggest trend in food in food whatever you go it's the whole farm to table that's what people love right people like to, you know the local thing and they just serve it i mean alice waters was one of the first ones starting that in the world and you know this was in the 70s in california so american they did they they are pioneers a lot in some stuff it's just i think what it exports is the you know, the chain restaurants, the bad food, let's put it like that. So, yeah, absolutely. When I arrived in the U.S., I had this misconception, like, all the food is horrible. And I knew there was something about Southern foods. I knew that, the and also soul food, I knew there was something there, but I didn't know exactly what it was. And also nowadays, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure about you guys, but I think sometimes, I was in London a couple of years ago, and I remember eating there and thinking, this is a D.C. restaurant. Things nowadays are very much the same, missing, you know. Everything has miso on it. Everything has a little bit of an Asian touch, something on the plate. So, but yeah, definitely I thought at the beginning everything was just hot dogs and burgers and things are not quite like that. Davide, mm -hmm. you work in a quite an international city. At least it has a lot of professionals that come in, diplomats, politicians that kind of come in from all around the world. Uh, could you do a rough kind of culinary map of regions of the world for us? Because uh, it's something which I've never really thought about before you came on the show. You know, how can we map out regions and continents of the world in, in terms of uh, culinary peccadillo, so to speak? In our case, in our specific case, when the new ambassador arrived two years ago, the whole idea, and still is, it's almost like a brand in the European Union. So, you know, a lot of our guests, yes, are a lot of people coming from Europe, but I would say probably the majority are Americans. And we want to show to them and you want to tell them like, hey, if you are eating mozzarella cheese, it's actually mozzarella from Italy. It's not from Wisconsin. And so the idea was to, and still is for me, to create menus that are part of the European Union countries. So, of course, there are some countries I'm not very, you know, I, I never study a lot, you know, you know, Lithuanias and things like that. I never... I never got a lot of study on it. But then because of this, I had to start basically doing a lot of homework. That was the ambassador's mission. He said, hey, I want you to do everything, but or can be inspired by European Union country. Or if we have fish, make sure the fish comes from, you know, Spain or Portugal, doesn't matter. So that's our focus. Our focus is to make sure it comes from one of the 27 countries, you know, and then it's up to me to play a little bit with the recipes. I have the tendency still to do very much five, six countries not just me being against other countries. I just think, you know, I just think France, England, Spain, Greece, Italy, at least when it comes to food, I think at least it's more my knowledge and gives it a little more diversity. But we try to do things, you know, even if it's the bread from Finland or something, we try to make as a whole the meal, make sure everything has a little bits and pieces of, all, of some countries of the European Union. So wait a minute, because of Brexit, you've had to take fish and chips off the menu. See, that's why I said 27, exactly. There's no there's no Stilton. There's nothing of that. I can't. So, yeah. OMG. Have you taken this loss personally? The fact that you can't have Stilton and uh, Branston pickle and fish and chips on the menu? I mean, Amer uh, English have a, lot of, uh, have a lot of amazing things. And there's a lot of your sausages, your pork, your cheese. Those are all registered by the European Union. You know, European Union. So... And we want to use those products, but we can't, you know, the idea is to keep, you know, for instance, you know, people forget sometimes I want to get lamb and basically lamb comes from, you know, New Zealand or from Iceland and Iceland is not part of the EU, although it's in Europe, sort of, uh, but it's not part of the EU. So it's a challenge. Of course, I was very sad at the beginning. I was doing a lot of using a lot of British products, but ideally we're not using anymore. And how do you keep everybody happy because i can oh, I imagine, like, with, like i say with 27 countries and a, and a lot of different cult food cultures too no i don't so so the our ambassador he's from greece you know it's not exactly we have 27 people you know from the 
every country at the table. That doesn't happen. The only time we do have it is when we have our monthly uh, ambassadors breakfast and they all get together for a meeting. But that's a little more straightforward, the breakfast. But, you know, our dinners are, like I said, a lot of American folks and, you know, some, some maybe some commissioners coming from the EU. That's, that's the biggest challenge of an embassy is that normally, imagine, now with COVID, things are a little different. But we have a 16 people sit down dinner, three, four courses. And the most difficult thing is to please those 16 people without knowing what they like. Sometimes we know what they don't like because we have, I always have the restrictions or, you know, allergies, but that's the biggest challenge. And that's something you cannot take it personal. At the beginning, when I was at the Portuguese embassy, maybe because I was also a little younger, I felt very offended if I saw the plate coming back, you know, people barely touch it. But nowadays it's like, it's impossible. It's impossible to, for me to, if I don't know what people like, you know, for instance, I can give you an example, like doing octopus, for instance, it's very tricky. Because some people say, oh, I love octopus. I can guarantee you're going to find five people on that table and be like, nope, I can't. So it's a, it's very difficult. You just cannot take it personally. Just I try to do as more for everybody's taste as, as much as I can. But yeah, you cannot take it personally. It's fine. You know, some people don't like it. As long as two out of 16 don't like it, it's fine. 14 out of 16, then that's a problem. Which, which nationality is the most squeamish or the most picky when it comes to food? I, I mean, it's difficult for me to answer because... That, that, Davide, don't, don't be diplomatic. You work in the diplomatic court. No, no, no. Just, I don't have access to that. To that if the Americans me. deserve this crown, just say it's the Americans. Don't, don't just because you're in America. Okay, or, I'm oh, going he, to he, answer he, in a different way, and I okay. hope he doesn't listen to this. And But in my personal case, okay, so I basically so far I've worked with a Portuguese ambassador, an Irish ambassador, and a Greek ambassador mm -hmm. as of right now, and I love them to death, but... The Irish were more complicated. Why do you think that is? On a personal level, I'm just saying on a personal level, not on because again, embassy. Well, but yeah. ambassadors are proxies for countries, so this ambassador is representing the eating habits of every Irishman. That's what you've now said. I mean, they eat potatoes and cabbage, probably. <laughs> And again, they're very nice people. I just it was it was more tricky. So I can only I will answer. I will take. I will I'll put my my face out there. And if they listen to this, I love them. They know that. But we had our struggles when it comes to agreement with foods. So in my in my personal experience, Irish. Okay, no, interesting. Nobody from Ireland is going to listen to my podcast anymore. It's okay. <laughs> uh, I think. Um... And I suppose maybe there's something about the variety of um, kind of ingredients and, and food cultures. And, and Europe's a very diverse place, I guess. And, and trying to represent all of that must be quite tricky. What are your favourite sort of food, not just like foods, but food cultures? I mean, I think that's, there's a slight difference, isn't there, between the, the food that people are eating, but also the way that people enjoy food. One of the things we we trying and, you know, embassy is a very formal kind of setup, right? And my idea, since I started even at the Portuguese embassy, I think you have to have a great relationship with the ambassador. And so far, I've been very lucky to have three ambassadors right now. And our relationship is very, very close, which normally that doesn't happen. Because sometimes it can be, embassy can be seen almost like an aristocracy kind of lifestyle, you know, a little bit like Downton Abbey. You don't talk with the cook, you know, why should you talk with, why should you talk with the chef? But I try as my, my best and we have great relations. So that's why I keep in touch with my previous ambassadors that I work with. And my goal is always to strip down a little bit what's that concept of an embassy. So for instance, you know, this might sound super simple, but last year, not so much now because of COVID, but last year, every time we had small, small dinners, like four people, I would make like a big paella actually in a big paella pan and put it right at the center table. And that's something people don't do at all at embassies. Because people are more restrained to the whole individual plates, you know, the more fancy foods. And if we can strip down that a little bit, you know, nowadays we have like little dips at the table. We never had that before. And other embassies, don't know, they don't do it. So I try to have a more relaxed approach because we all forget these people can have suits and ties. But these people are people at the end of the day, right? You know, the Portuguese ambassador, when I work with him, the, his favorite meal was a can of tuna, Portuguese can of tuna a boiled potato and a boiled egg. And people might think it's weird, but, you know, I always say the diplomats, they deal with these people in their in suit and ties. I deal with these people in their pajamas, basically. So at the end of the day, they're just like normal people. They like to eat normal, simple food. Nobody 
maybe unless you're a Frenchman, nobody likes to eat lobster for lunch and for dinner and caviar. And it, it's just nobody likes that. I mean, maybe some people do, but generally just like what makes you happy, what's comfort food, what you reminds you at home. So I try to strip down a little bit what's an embassy kind of style. And sometimes, you know, we are successful, sometimes we're not. But I think at the dinner table for five, 10 minutes, if people forget they're actually at an embassy dinner, that's my goal. Do you serve large plates of Ferrero Rochers? <laughs> I could, no. I mean, they're Italian, right? Fer- are they? Are they Italian? They is might. It, I mean, no, Ferrero, big, big, I mean, it does have an Italian sound. I'm not so sure if it's Italian. That that one, I have to do some research. Sorry, you, but you know what? Claire, that that was a zinger. Well done, well done. You know what? What what I like about this? It uh, is Italian, day. by the way. Yes. <laughs> What I like about this conversation is it, it's it, on, on the one hand, it feels somewhat jokey, but obviously some deep national truths are going to be revealed here, or at least can be. So which nationality has the best table manners? Because I'm thinking that, you know, surely the French have got to be up there with that. There's a certain kind of etiquette and whatever. But, but, but I don't want you to feel incumbent by the fact that, you know, you fundamentally work by the EU. Just, just dish the dirt. Who is the best and who is the worst? Americans are the worst. <gasps> Absolutely. And I, 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 you, but it, go on, go on. Is this crowd American, most of them? Because now they're Absolutely. looking like... Absolutely. Pat and Ken are about to log off in anger in a moment now. Sorry, Americans. The whole, the whole, the, the knife and the and the, the knife that's only to use to cut. Not in in Europe, we use the knife also to help you know scoop on the on the for salads. American only. Well, that's the first thing when I noticed when I moved to the U.S. Americans try to cut chicken with a fork. My blood pressure started going up. I was like, no, you use a knife. You don't need a fork. And I teach classes as well, and I see people doing it all the time. They still like not half an hour trying to break a piece of fork or piece of chicken. Anyway, I would say Americans just you know to save a little bit my my soul here. The best ones, I'm not sure if it's the best, but that's why we associate with be, being more structured, being more, I mean, the, uh, you know, being a little more high class, whatever that means, probably the French. Because when you start associating associating with, you know, Portugal, Spain, Italy, it's very much hands-on, right? Everything more like tapas at the table. And I'm not sure if that's like the quote-unquote true good manners. I mean, the British in like in the 1915 or something, they probably were, but... But I will say French. The worst, I will say Americans. Sorry. I, I, I will completely and utterly back you up. And I, and, I, and I don't cook for an international crowd. But as somebody who's done a tiny bit of traveling, it always beggars belief that most Americans don't know how to use a knife. And if you'd have said this to me before I came here, I'd have said, ah, come on now. But like they seriously don't. And they do that little thing where they, they use their little pinky finger just to shovel the food onto the floor. It's like, that's what the yes. knife's there for. That drives me crazy. The salads, because again, they only do the fork, like picking the fork, like they're fishing. And then at the end, they realize they cannot like pick up on with the fork anymore, the little lettuce. So there goes the finger, just a little, oops. Yeah. And like, it's like, please, come on. This is like basic food 101. Pat, Pat, Sorry, Pat Ken. Sorry, right Pat. But you, Pat you need to be called like out for this shocking behavior, you know. Anyway. At least I'm not alone, I'm not alone on this one. Yes. No, no, you're absolutely not. I couldn't believe it, right? But there was there's actually etiquette lessons for silicon valley kind of millionaires billionaires and actually how to eat how to use a knife this is a thing in california Mm -hmm. because they know that uh, as these guys like in their 20s in their 30s and they're you know got these you know podcast i podcast you know software ideas and they're going to conquer the world with with their with this software idea that they then go in front of these venture capitalists and all these venture capitalists are always shocked because they don't know how to use a knife. They're like, I'm going to give you like $50 million and you don't know how to use a knife. So they go off and have etiquette lessons and it's always how to use a knife. True yep. fact. True I, I, fact. I did I not know that. I'm, Claire, utterly it's a thing. I had dinner once with a dude from Google, high up in Google. I couldn't believe what he was doing with his fork. He, he's exactly what you said, Davide. He's, he was like he was chasing the, the chicken around the plate. He didn't know how to... It's like, dude, spear the thing, use your knife, cut off the end. Simple, right? And he was earning God knows how much money at Google. I looked But even like American diplomacy, it's different than European diplomacy. Like Americans are... are, They're taught in diplomacy to cut and actually then put the fork on the right hand. uh, Switch the... So, hang on. 
So yeah, you have fork on your left hand, you switch the fork to the right hand to, and mm-hmm. you rest the, the knife. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europeans are not like that. We normally have the tendency to just leave it, uh, you know, our fork and knife, if you're right-handed, you know, fork on the left, knife on the right. And and you basically just eat it that way. Americans cut it, take it, put it the other way, and then they eat it. That's the more American diplomacy. But even then, if you go to a restaurant, most of people don't do that. But yeah, it's the whole, the fork is is the fork, spoon, and knife, basically. That's what they think. So they go, they just chase with that. Interesting. I love the chat here. I love what people are saying. That's cool. <laughs> so can I ask about, I mean, because we're a map and sort of travel and cartography podcast, uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about was how how does geography play out in terms of food culture? Because I was just listening to your podcast recently where you were talking about how obviously a, a typical, of, if there is a typical Portuguese cuisine it would be around seafood because you you just have a lot of coastline but then presumably what connects places that have a lot of coastline or places that are mountainous or places that are the, the, the physical geography drives the farming culture which then drives the food culture so i don't know what you see across when you're looking across europe as a whole for example do you see parallels between countries in very different places but have similar culture because of those natural features? It's a very good question. I mean, I think we are influenced a little bit by where we are and, you know, our geography. I'm thinking, you know, especially only being lived... I mean, I lived in Belgium for a little bit, but basically Portugal and the U.S. I definitely can see similarities if you go more to the interior of the U.S., southern part of the U.S., actually, with a little bit more the interior part of Portugal. Like you said, you know... I think we are much more laid back. For instance, in Portugal, everybody relaxes a lot. Let's eat some sardines after a long day at stay at the beach. That's probably that doesn't happen here, even if you're on a coast on a coastal part. I think, I think you know, traditionally Mediterranean countries in Europe have the tendency to be way more laid back the way they even approach food and the way they eat it. Northern countries not so much because those waters are ice cold and you know there's nothing you can do. But I think it might influence. I think it influences your mood as well. I think, you know, because of that, you might cook in a different way and you might display things in a different way. You know, I have some friends, they are a little bit, you know, in Europe, like Norway and Finland and Iceland. And I don't see them being very warm approach when it comes to food, like perhaps Portuguese people they have. Was that a good answer? Probably wasn't a great answer. Sorry. I I think certainly when I lived in Spain, just the physically being outdoors was a real difference and the and the the timings and the speed of things is is different well yeah i mean everything you know i always give this example joking but not joking yeah i always so in portugal we have something called splanada which is the coffee the coffee that he has an outdoor area to sit down and you drink your beer and the, the, the portuguese people they do that for like three hours you know just chill for three hours or they meet after dinner imagine you go or you go to work come home have dinner and after dinner at 9 30 p.m you call your friend i'll be like hey claire let's have a little coffee and we have a coffee and we sit outside for an hour i mean americans i always say they'll have a heart attack thinking about if you give american three hours to sit on outdoor place in half an hour they will collapse they don't know and also i live in dc which is a little different but this whole constant thing like like almost like a stress level they don't know how i always say americans don't know how to relax that's why i always think it's funny when they go to the beach they always have to straight they also they get tanned very quickly but they like in an hour okay this was awesome let's just go back let's all go back home let's let's just go they cannot just like lounge for 12 hours like we do i'm not saying it's a bad thing and also you know even for instance when stores open in portugal i was just in portugal a few years ago and i remember seeing this accounting place was supposed to open at nine and the owner and right next to it it's a coffee shop and one of the big things in portugal people have actually breakfast outside outside of their houses not like grab and go like in the us you actually sit down you have a little pastry you have a little coffee you read the newspaper say hello to everyone it's like a half an hour thing and the store supposed to open at nine and the owner he arrived to the coffee shop first he had his coffee there was people already in line to get into his store and only at 9 15 he was like okay let me open very chill nobody complained in the us I teach cooking classes, and we during the summer we we teach for the kids at nine a.m. At eight fifty nine, if the stores are the store is still closed, they call customer service right away. The store is like David. Hey. It's it's a, it's the same thing with this podcast. Ken and Pat, the two Americans, were kicking off. We're so angry when we didn't start exactly at ten. I got furious texts from them. 
Americans just need to learn to chill out. I they couldn't don't. agree with your mother. But see, you I would like to. But I generally would like to know when did that start? And again, it's very difficult. We do generalizations, but it, it is true. Like even when I travel and I see other Americans, the inability not to be able to relax or whatever relax means for them. But, you know, just just lounge, just be like a turtle. I don't know. Just just don't do anything for 10 hours. They can't. They just they collapse interior. Which you is know, David, I, I could listen to you all day long with your generalizations of the characteristics of uh, different nations uh, th throughout the globe. But on, on that note, we need to have a, have a quick pause, sir, a quick pause and uh, go on to our much vaulted and very exciting quiz. Now, the quiz is an, in, is an essential part of Map Corner. It's put together by our wonderful Claire Asprey. She works really hard on these quizzes. And uh, so get paper and pencil together, Nick Roworth et al, because here is the quiz. Right, first question. In what country does injera bread come from? Is it... Is, who's answering? I'm sorry. Is oh, no, not you. Not you. Not oh. you. No, no, no. Are no. you the quiz? So, so much editing you had to do. you got to okay. write it down. No, no, no. We'll leave that in. That That's comic gold with you thinking that it, the quiz was just, you know, for you to answer. I, I was but, very but nervous no. about this part. Okay. All right. In what country does injera bread form the basis of meals? Number one, Cuba. Number two, Ethiopia. Three, Laos. So in what country does injera bread form the basis of meals? Cuba, Ethiopia or Laos? Uh, goulash is a national dish of Hungary. But which of these ingredients was not in the original? Number one, tomato. Number two, paprika. Number three, potato. Or all of the above. Again, goulash is a national dish of Hungary. But which of these ingredients was not in the original? Tomato, paprika, potato, all of the above. I think I've just worked out the answer for that one. All right, cool. Fettuccine al Papilina is the national dish of which small nation? Number one, San Marino. Two, Monaco. Three, the Vatican City. Fettuccine Papilina is the national dish of which small nation? San Marino, Monaco or the Vatican City. Number four, which is the world's most expensive spice? The world's most expensive spice is native to Southwest Asia. What is it? Is it cardamom, saffron or anise? Is that pronounced? The world's most expensive spice is native to Southeast Asia. What is it? Is it cardamom, saffron or star anise? Question number five. Which country leads the world in turkey consumption per person? Ooh, is it the United States? And uh, there's always turkeys wandering around in, in, in the East Bay. It, it's, it's, they are big, ugly birds. You know, the, the local park just around the corner. Good heavens, right? And there's one rather vicious male turkey there. Scares the bejesus out of me. Anyway, is it the United States? Is it Israel or is it Slovakia? Which country leads the world in turkey consumption? United States, Israel or Slovakia? Yakitori is a Japanese meal which traditionally includes grilled chicken skewers, tempura vegetables, or is it hot pot? Yakitori is a Japanese meal which traditionally includes what? Grilled chicken skewers, tempura vegetables, or is it three hot pot food festivals? What food is celebrated at the festival in Bunal in Venezia, Spain? How do I pronounce that, Claire? Bunyol. Bunyol. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Is it ham, tomato or is it strawberries? What food is celebrated at a festival in Buñol in Valencia in Spain? Ham, tomato or strawberries? Uh, number eight. And this is your last one. Food festivals. What food is celebrated at the festival at Chinchilla in Australia? Is it melon, prawn or cheese? What food is celebrated at a festival in Chinchilla, Australia? Is it melon, prawn or cheese? And of course, good people, we will uh, come back to you at the end of the episode with the answers. Now, Davide. No, I said I love the questions. Sorry. Oh, Claire, take a bow. Take a bow, Claire. She's bowing. Works really well on a podcast. It works definitely on Zoom, not so much on a podcast. Um, now, 
Davide, I kind of feel that you might have started an international incident. You know, I'm sat in America. We have Americans here in the audience. They're bristling with all of the jibes that you've thrown at them that they don't know how to use a knife. Basically, you've said Americans are brutish. So I don't know how this question section is going to go. But this is the time, folks, where you people on Zoom can throw a question to to Davide, international chef. If you're French, you'll, you'll probably throw a question to him, which is going to be somewhat of a softball because he says you have the greatest amount of manners and etiquette. If you're Irish, you're probably angry. And if you're American, the floor is yours. Americans, fire your questions at this man. He's maligned your country and culture. <laughs> Pat, you must be so angry. Pat, she's ready. I'm not at all. <laughs> but I do, I do. I'm a terrible mix of things because of where I've lived. So I can't really speak on behalf of Americans at all. Um, but I do wonder where you source your food. Do you get anything local? Is it all brought in for, from EU countries? Everything down to eggs and greens, or where do you? How do you source your food? Luckily, DC has a lot of little markets. You know, for instance, if I want to get anything from Greece, there's a little, like a very nice little Greek store that this lady, she's the owner, and she actually makes everything in the house, and she brings everything, imports everything. So I try. You know, I I work with a fish company in DC that a lot of their fish comes from Spain, Portugal. So I try. You know, France, Greece. So you know, but sometimes, of course, we got to go to Safeway and buy something. I mean, God forbid. I'm not. I'm not too strict about. You can't because also money, and then you spend too much money also doing that. But yeah, we try to go. Luckily, DC has a lot of of offer. You know, a little more local stores from those countries, and you know, online is always a good option. And and also make sure even if I go to a traditional grocery store you know, Whole Foods or something, try to see where the fishies come from. You know, a lot of Branzino, for instance, comes from Greece. So that's an option already. So, yeah. I was going to ask whether COVID's made a difference in the last year. Have supply lines been affected? So weird or silly answer, probably, but we didn't have anything at the embassy. The embassy, basically, we didn't have any dinners for seven months. Right. So, So you know, now things are because, you know, I'm in the US and uh, some people here as well. Luckily, the vaccines are starting to work in a way that at least people feel more secure. So things are more opening up a little more. So now it's a little better, but I cannot tell for the, those seven, eight months. We just didn't have anything. So, yeah. Do we have a, a question from Ken or Sarah, Sergio, Jennifer, or Maurice Snell? Sarah, I don't know what you're shaking your head for. You're always you're always good for a question. You right. <laughs> Ken, go for it. How does the ambassadorship of the EU work? Does that rotate among nations? Not necessarily. I mean, I think normally they they all come from a country from the European Union. And who makes the decision? I think it's the, the president of the European Commission that selects the person. And But now, you know, this is a Greek guy before it was an Irish, before it was... A, a Portuguese one before it was an Irish again. So, yeah. But and then it's every four or five years they, they change. And for you personally, what comes next? Because I can't really imagine in terms of, I don't know an awful lot about the world of being a chef, but this sounds to me like pretty much you're at the top of your game. This is a pretty prestigious gig that you have. So, you know, what could come next? In a dream, dream world, that's not going to happen. I moved back home and I have my big backyards and I just grow all my vegetables and I have a few chickens and a little bit. And I would love to do like sit down dinners like people would not know the menu, but everything I make, it's from actually my backyards. But this is a very expensive and a very dream, dream for me. But maybe, you know, maybe doing like just twice or three times a month, just do that, like a five course thing, you know, charge something. I would love to do that. Definitely going back to Portugal, it's my, on a personal level, it's one of my goals. Professionally, I would love to write a book. That's it. You know, the book for me will be, I would love to write what Americans and Portuguese have in similar when it comes to food and their approach to food. With recipes, of course. I would. That's probably my goal goal. I'm not going to work at a restaurant probably anymore. And I'm saying this at the age of 33, you know, knock on wood. If I have to, I will go back, of course. But like you said, I was very lucky to be in a very different world since the age of 23. 
And I'm also aware that culinary, as much as people love it, it doesn't get, you don't get paid very well, you know, in the world, you know, in the industry of, of food and beverage. So all of this in consideration, I know my situation very well. And I always said I wanted to do three embassies, three embassies in DC. I've, I've done two. I'm not so sure if it's worth it for me to leave the EU and go to other place. It had to be something super challenging. So I don't know, you know, I have definitely the next 10 years, I see myself staying at the embassy or, you know, if, if they, if they allow me. So, but yeah, you know, I would love to write a book and I would trying to understand more, you know, the whole where try to less is more when it comes to food, try to have more that approach, but that's also more on a personal level, but yeah. That's that's pretty much the the goals. I'm a simple person, so just, that's not a whole lot. But yeah, <laughs> there a hierarchy of embassies. So, like, is it like? I mean, it feels like the EU embassy is more prestigious than the Portuguese. No offense, Portugal. Of course it is. Um, yeah. So you know, so like, how 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 does that work? Like, like, is there nowhere you can go from the EU? Because the EU is like top of the tree. Well, I mean, and it's not everything in the world, but this part people have to talk about. We don't have to be diplomatics. You know, money is a big part of it. You know, people forget when you work abroad, most of the times, unless you're a diplomat, that might be a little different. But if you're a part of the staff, like I am, you get paid by that country. So, you know, Portugal has one of the lowest minimal salaries in Europe. People think like, because you are in, in the US, you're going to start making a lot of money. No, because you get paid by Portuguese government. So there's that part. So I'm not naive about that. And I know that, you know what, unless it's like Switzerland, which is not even part of the EU. Yeah. So there's just a few countries, I believe, that probably can provide, you know, a good, a good amount of money. But, and also the position has to be available. I was very lucky because the chef actually was at the European Union embassy. He actually left to the Swiss embassy and he called me and said, Hey, there's this position available. I'm not sure if you're interested. And I applied, but you know, I, it's not exactly the, it's the positions are open that much. Uh, and like you said, you know, I, would I go from the EU embassy to the Spanish embassy? No. Uh, nothing against, of course, if I had to, sure. But if I can choose, I think to do it, I would love or just comp- something or the Canadian embassy, the Australian embassy. Deep down, I had like a dream for a while and I don't think will happen. But if I could work at the Blair House, which is basically the White House 2.0, sort of. But the, the Blair House or the White House, that, that probably could, that could, that can be an interesting challenging challenge. But it's also something very difficult to get in. It's not exactly just like, oh, I'm applying. I saw in the newspaper. So, yeah. So mm-hmm. in an imaginary world mm-hmm. where you're paid in the foodstuffs of the nation in question rather than actual cash. Which would be your dream embassy? Okay, if money wasn't a thing? No, if you're paid in the in the typical foodstuffs of the nation instead. Part of me would love to go back to the Portuguese embassy just because I'm a better I'm a better chef nowadays. And I would love we have so much to offer. And I would Barry, love to- isn't that just blatant nationalism? Come on, you're just a hometown boy, you know, because here's the thing, right? I, I've spent a little bit of time in Lisbon. Beautiful city, by the way. One it's shot from Sarah now. I, uh, what I'm going to say comes from the heart, right? I was utterly confused. Wonderfully charming city, kind of this Baroque, fade, slightly fading grandeur, you know, the views of the Tagus and well, amazing, right? What but... the hell is it with double carbs, chips and rice on the plate? What was that all about? What did you what did you have? Well, chips and rice. I went to a couple oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What's that? Double carbs. It's crazy. That that's called double happiness for some people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I always because... carbohydrate I didn't like. We're not starting a keto diet here. It's called double happiness. Yes. It's a very a lot of traditional restaurants will have, especially with a steak. You probably had steak with that. Yeah, it's steak. It's like a Portuguese steak way we call it, and then we have we have the little sauce with white wine, and then he has rice and chips, yeah, or fries, yeah. That's that's the thing, eh? I, I, Nobody I, ever I complained. Didn't, I, I looked at my plate and I said, well, "What what is going on here? They're trying and to fried, kill me." And a fried egg, and a fried egg on top. <laughs> sure, and a fried egg on. The, yeah, they, we do that. We do the double the double carb, but you know who cares? Yeah. Oh, that sounds no. great to me. My waistline cares, my waistline. But what we should do, good people, is go on to the next bit of the show, which is the audio postcard. And the winner 
The person who does the audio postcard is always the person who has won the quiz. So I wonder who will do next month's audio postcard. But before we do that, here is this month's. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Lesbos is the third largest Greek island and is located in the northeastern Aegean Sea. The nearest landmass is Asia Minor. Imagine being there with me for Greek Orthodox Easter which this year is in early May. For Greeks, Easter is the most important religious festival and a time of celebration. Food and hospitality are very important in Greek culture and for religious Greeks, Easter Sunday marks the end of a period of strict fast and abstinence. Olive oil is the main product of Lesvos, supplemented by the manufacture of soap and ouzo. Fishing remains an important occupation. There is little tourism, but in the summer, Molivos, on the north of the island, attracts visitors. Imagine we are staying in Thermi, an unspoilt coastal village 11 kilometres north of Mytilene town. This is where we will have breakfast at the local hotel, the Vozla. Over the straits we can see Turkey. An essential part of any stay in Lesbos is a visit to the main shopping street in Mytilene, Aramu. Many Greek towns have an Ermu street, named for the Greek god Hermes, the protector of travellers but also the god of merchants, and in typically Greek fashion, of thieves. At the eastern end of Ermu, we will have lunch in the Café Neon Ermu, a traditional café. We may be the only non-Greeks there. After lunch, we will take the short walk to the old harbour and its statue of the Asia Minor Mother, a reminder of the refugees who arrived in Lesbos in 1922. Many were women with young children, whose husbands were dead or prisoners of war. Lesvos is still at the heart of a refugee crisis. The island has a history of accepting and welcoming people in great need. Another trip is to Scullus Acheminius, a fishing village on the north of the island. The church on the harbour became famous when Stratus Marivalis published his book The Mermaid Madonna in 1959. He wrote much of his work under the shade of the old mulberry tree outside the harbour front taverners. In our travels around the island, we will see many chapels. We will enjoy the spring flowers and explore the island on foot. Wherever we are on Lesvos, we will be sure of a friendly welcome. The Greek word for hospitality, philoxenia, literally translates as friend to a stranger. The highlight of our stay will be following the procession of the icon around Asamatos village on Great Friday. At midnight on Saturday we will join in the local celebrations in Thermi Harbour or watch the fireworks in Mytilene, followed by a celebratory meal, traditionally of wild goat, on Easter Sunday itself. Oh, that wasn't half good. Claire, social media time let's have a roundup lovely okay so just wanted to particularly mention on the twitter hashtag hashtag map corner we had a great rainfall map of the uk shared by magic at magic at mungos um which had a sort of you know showed you in a sort of uh, looked like mountains where the rain was basically and it just basically really emphasized how if you're in the west of the uk it's a lot wetter than the east which we sort of know, but it, it, it just really stood out. And then over on the Facebook group, there are quite a lot of chats going on at the moment. The most popular post or the most commented post in the last month was the uh, the map of Californian stereotypes, which caused some good chat in the group. 
And, and we also had the discussion around how road signs were displayed from furthest to closest or closest to furthest. That found utterly, utterly fascinating. I had no idea about that. No, no it's idea. Good to me to do it the other way around. Yeah. Like for the country that's always gone closest to furthest, it feels really counterintuitive to do yeah. it the other way around. And yet, you know, people take it as normal wherever they start from. So, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And oh, Sergio's here on the, in the call, but I want to give Sergio the Ken McDonald Prize for Homemade Map of the Month because he made his own map of the rapid transit system in Bogota, uh, which he shared. And uh, I particularly enjoyed how you could put side by side the official map and the home one. It wasn't homemade. It was very professionally produced, I might say. But it was very impressive. And, uh, you know, I just think it speaks to the spirit of Map Corner that it's people who are, you know, sat down going, oh, I could make a better version of this transit map. And I just going to sit down and do it. So I, I'm really, really proud of um, Sergio. And, 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 the, the, and he's, uh, we can see Sergio on camera. So Sergio, for the sake of the podcast, not Zoom, take a bow. <laughs> Thank you. Works well on a podcast. Awesome. And then uh, just an honourable mention, really, for Steve Baker, who uh, shared a the Board Panda article called the 30 Terrible Maps. But it wasn't terrible maps. There were some brilliant maps. And there were some slightly dubious, but there were some very good maps in that in that article. And my favourite, actually, which just goes to show you the, the, the importance of perspective in what maps are sa- saying to you. It was number eight. And it was the uh, map showing the risk of bear attack. And it basically took the whole solar system. And it had like no risk of bear attack across the rest of the solar system. And then across Earth, it had very high risk of bear attack for like the whole planet. <laughs> I think it, it really emphasised something we could we ought to bear in mind about you know, how we presented with data in any context, really. But maps are very, tr- you know, very true for this. Uh, you know, no, no map is potentially completely neutral and they're all, you know, they're all coming from a particular angle. And the idea that if you if you zoom out far enough, what what generalizations you might make about a place changes. And I say this as living in a part of the world where my risk of bear attack is also about equi- you know, about the same as it would be on Mars. But uh, you know, when you look at it across the solar system, I, re- I really enjoyed that and um, that change of context. So that was that was a lot of fun. So I do recommend to go and look at that because there's some really great maps there and some of the animal maps I, I loved as well. So um one to one to look up there if you haven't gone through to that link smashing there's your social media roundup is it time for answers to the quiz davide what do you reckon yes i think you're right you perfect timing sir i suppose being a chef everything's about perfect timing with you has to be has to be has to be indeed right claire um where I don't know the answers, you're going to have to shout them out because I haven't done the slides with the answers because I've ran out of time. Right. In... I remember the answers. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think we can just about work this out. And if not, we have an internationally renowned chef with us. So if he yeah, doesn't yeah. know... Good luck I with that. Yeah. You know, pressure's on you, Mr. Mr. Martins. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. So in which country does injera bread form the basis of meals? And the answer is Ethiopia. That is the that is one of those cultures where it is totally legit to eat with your hands, Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Other than that, you can use a knife and a fork, lazy. Well, actually, it's interesting because my daughter used to eat with her hands when she was very small, and I let her keep doing it for quite a number of years because of her Moroccan heritage, where also people eat with their hands. Watching Moroccans eat couscous with their hands is phenomenal. I can't do it. And, you know, I'm always really impressed. So I think, uh, and it's something that young children have an instinctive ability to do. And then we teach them out of it. You know, I think it's really interesting how we kind of change some of those cultures deliberately, because I think humans are quite good at that at two and three, but at five and six, they're not always as good because we've taught them to use a knife and fork. So, yeah, it's, uh, it is a really important aspect of a lot of food cultures, actually. Uh, you know, it's utterly a, a fair comment, a fair comment. Uh, right. Number two, goulash is the national dish of Hungary. In which of these, but which of these ingredients, sorry, was not in the original and the answer is Claire Asprey. I think oh, I know the answer. Because the original recipe was medieval, and none of those ingredients—tomato, paprika, or potato 
known or available in Hungary in medieval times. That's what I also thought, but well done. That was an educated guess on my part. Ken McDonald, you were nodding sagely. You worked that out as well, didn't you? Well done. Well done, sir. All right, uh, number three, fettuccine alla papalina is the national dish of which small nation? I have no blooming idea. I'm going to guess and say San Marino. What's the answer, Claire? Okay, so look at the name and have a guess which one, where would you find the papa? Oh, gosh, yes, of course, Vatican City. I didn't have pap, yeah, father. Well done, well done. All right. The world's most expensive spice is native to Southeast Asia. What is it? And the answer is, I have no idea. So, Claire, the answer is? Saffron. Saffron. Famously the most expensive thing because it's incredibly complicated to produce. David A is nodding there going, yep, yep, yep. Nailed that one. Which country leads the world in turkey consumption per person? My guess would be to say the United States. And the answer is Israel. Good heavens. And Ken McDonald lifted up his finger in triumph. He nailed that one well, too. Sure. I, I figured that's one thing, you know. They, they, ah, they... Well done. Yes, 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 yes. Smart audience, yes. Yeah, smarter than the host anyway, Davide, I tell you. Right. <laughs> Yakitori is a Japanese meal which traditionally consists of, this is grilled chicken skewers. I love a bit of yakitori. Right, so. That's correct. Number seven. Which food is celebrated at a festival in Buñol in Valencia in Spain? I'm going to go ham as a guest, Claire. Oh, gosh. Oh, Davide, give us the answer. It's it's tomato, as you will say. Yeah, tomato. Yeah. No, you were right the first time, Davide. Oh, tomato. 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 The Somatina Festival, which is right. where get covered in tomato. In the oh, yes, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Now you say, now you say of course. Yeah, we can now I'm like, yeah, it's where they throw the tomatoes Makes and all sense. wearing white. And I just didn't connect it when I read it out. But now you're... It's the way you said Buñol. Maybe that's why you thought it was the ham festival. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you for giving me an out. What food is celebrated at the Festival of Chinchilla in Australia? Utterly no idea. And the answer is... Davide, do you know? Actually, I, don't know. I do not know this one. This was the only one I was like, mm, I'll go for melon because it's different. But probably it's not. correct. It's melon. Boom. There you go. Can we have you back on again? You're you're highly entertaining, Davide. Any any time. <laughs> Crumbs. Well, you're on back on next month. Then it's there you true. go. Anytime. <laughs> anytime. Right. So come on, bask in glory. Who got all of those correct? Use the hand up function, or or just go like this if you got them all correct. Oh, nobody, other than. A chef. Who got only one wrong? Two wrong. And you said this was a smart audience, Davide. They're not so smart. They still are a, they're still a smart audience. And I would not have got to all of them because of the turkey one. Ken had a good point that I, that I forgot. Yeah, yeah, the kosher thing. Three yeah. wrong. Right. Oh, look at that. Okay, right. So, Ken, you've done a lot of audio postcards. Nick, you might have done one way back when. Am I correct? I did a very short one on the very first map corner when we all did. Well done. So, so you can stand down. So we're looking at, was it Sergio? Sarah, did you get three wrong? Yes, I did. And you, Sergio, and then also you, Pat. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it's a toy toss between Sergio and Sarah, the two S's. Right. Well, both so. doing audio postcard, then we've always got one in hand. I'm up for doing one. Cool. You know what? I like that. I like that. It's a, you've just displayed the wisdom of Solomon, Claire. Right? Because I would have bestowed upon somebody the honour of actually winning. But you're like, let them both do it. Thank you. Whew. So, right. I want to get a postcard from the Bogotapi transit system from Sergio. That, you know what? That would be most excellent. Or one from the deepest wilds of Sandwell. Don't leave you out there, Sarah. So, and then we'll play out, we'll do a to- coin toss as to which one we play out next month's episode. Brilliant. That'll be our cliffhanger. Who's it going to be? There you go. We always bring the drama on this podcast, don't we, Claire? <laughs> Thank you. So, where are we? Goodness, what a Christian because he's put a thing in the comments and um, it would be just nice to give him a chance. All right, go on then, Maurice. Ask your question, sir. Oh, thank you. And sorry I joined late, so sorry if this has been asked already, but 
I'm curious to know whether you get political briefings on what food to serve, maybe to change the tone, like spice it up or cool it down, or whether you get, like we heard a lot in the Brexit negotiations, that you have to sort of make a point by serving a particular food. Yeah, no, just making a point that we are serving from a particular food. Even when I cooked, I'm going to plug in here, nobody asked, but even when I cooked for the Obamas, nobody said, you got to do this way. So no. Wow. I'm even more impressed now. (laughs) It's just to finish like that. You know, just finish on top. So what did you cook for the Obamas? So now people get interested. Uh, So basically everything you have for brunch, but finger foods. Because it was like a two o'clock thing, so with a lot of food, so for it was a welcome neighbor's party, so that's what I did. It was finger foods for brunch. Did you ever host the Trumps? I cooked for Ivanka and Jared. Actually, they <laughs> so by the embassy, the residents, it's basically everybody's neighbor neighbors. So actually, the Obamas move; they are next door to the ambassador's house. Ivanka and Jared, they were behind us. You know, Jeff Bezos. It's like a very poor neighborhood, so every <laughs> everybody struggles a lot. So you know, I did, I, but I did cook for the Ivanka, for Ivanka and for Jared. I don't remember right. what I made. So what you what you're describing is like a soup kitchen, a homeless shelter where people come in to eat. It just mm-hmm. happens that these and are like ex presidents of the United States, you know, full on hard times, yeah, can't yeah. cook for himself and whatever. So you come round and 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 feed them. That's true. oh, it's a great social service that you're offering. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, pretty much yeah. Claire, do we have a map fact of the month? Yes, we do, uh, and it's an anniversary fact. So we're recording on the 1st of May, and 100 years ago yesterday, the 30th of April, 1921, was the day in which Ordnance Survey determined the exact altitude of official sea level, from which all heights are now calculated. And it was based on some surveys that were being done off the end of a pier in Newlyn in Cornwall in England. And so it was 100 years ago yesterday that they finally decided where. And I haven't really thought about it, but basically it's really tricky because there are tides and then there's rivers and all sorts of like the water's never always at the same level anyway. It's moving all the time. So how do you decide where sea level is? And if I'm honest, I had not really given it any thought until I read this article about it, which I'll put in the Facebook group. That, you know, how, how do you determine where the sort of mid official you know sea level can be but anyway they did and it's 100 years old and now all maps all around the world use that as their baseline good heavens that is a proper good map fact claire well done well done for digging deep as always and bringing and dropping some knowledge bombs on the podcast because uh, you know i pay it for shits and giggles but you're much more serious than me and we've had a most wonderful guest this month who has brought not only knowledge culinary expertise but also a sense of mischievous humour as he's trashed the Americans and their eating habits, <laughs> malign the Irish, saying that they have the most unsophisticated palate of all the countries in the EU. So I don't know how you're going to go back to work, sir, because if I was the Irish ambassador, I'd be like saying, Oi, mush, get out the door. You're out. You're out. <laughs> Davide, thank you for coming on to the podcast. You've been a ray of sunshine, an utter oh. ray of sunshine. And, and can I ask you, because you always ask this in your podcast, to uh, sell your fish in the um, in the phrase. So where where can people find your podcast? The podcast called Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. You can find that on any platform. Just Google. You know, it has, it's on Spotify. It's on Apple. You can find me on Instagram as well. Turning Chickens, Breaking Dishes. Uh, I have guests every day. Every, every not every day. There'll be a lot of work every week. You know, I've been so lucky to talk with people like Jack Pepin from Andrew Zimmern and Phil Rosenthal, all those people. So, so yeah. And if people have any questions, if you have a suggestion, or if you want to send me an email or something, you can do so at info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. It comes out every Wednesday, the podcast. And, and yeah, that's where people can find me. If you want any tips to go to Portugal, just ask whatever you want. Have you had any people from Birmingham on your podcast before? From where? Like the oh, second yeah. biggest city in the United Kingdom. I think actually, I might be wrong. Are you, are you guys famous for custard? Is that Birmingham? Where? Like the place you just said. <laughs> Aren't you guys famous for... Yes, uh, Bird's Custard. Bird's Custard. Yes. 
So yeah. I believe, I might be wrong here, but Dale Harris, I interviewed on a podcast on the first season. He was barista. He was the world champions barista in 2018. He won the championship in, in Seoul, Korea. And I think he's from Birmingham, actually. I think, because okay. he talked about custards. Now I'm thinking now that was the second biggest in the in, second biggest city in the UK. So see? There you go. I used to uh, dance in the uh, custard factory in Birmingham because it's a... Um... So I think I'm. I think he's from Birmingham. So I think I'm right. But episode. have you interviewed somebody who now lives in America, but's from Birmingham? Oh boy, he's really trying. No, I have not. <laughs> but I will be so happy to do so. <laughs> Look, guys, just just checking, just checking. Seems to me like you've got there's a bit of a gap in the culinary knowledge of the guests that you've had on this show. Just saying, just okay. saying, okay. Claire. Is it time for us to fold up our maps? Yeah, I'm just going to remind people that next month's recordings on the 5th of June and our guest next month is Phoebe Smith, who is a traveller and a host of the Wonder Woman podcast. Ooh, so there you go. Well, she's got uh, big shoes to fill after you've come on the show, Davide, and dropped your, your, dropped your wisdom and knowledge and humour to us. Folks... That's been us. It's been a rip-roaring barnstorming episode of uh, Map Corner. And we'll see you all again in approximately 30 days' time. Toodaloo, tarara bit. Say, there you go. Hey. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.